live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. It's just embarrassing. I don't know why the high voice ever. What's out. happened? Like the last couple of weeks, you've been like randomly critiquing your own voice during yeah. our rejoins. Just it's embarrassing. I, mean, I don't know what happened. This is the press box. He's just doing his own self-critique. He's just listening to these rejoins, oh, disgusted in his own voice, apparently. Yeah. The only thing I'm not disgusted is whacking that thing around, because it is me. With Grady and Bischoff. He literally is the exact same. It's, it's, it's the exact same. Ed was, a, was an actor at one point. He can make voices. <laughs> Child actor. On ESPN Las Vegas. Whacking that thing around. Here we go. It's a Friday. ESPN Las Vegas is the man told you. It's Ed, Tyler, and Danny running the show today. What's going on, buddy? Oh, I'm good today, Ed. I'm, I'm sure good. you I'm are. I'm glad you're back. I'm glad you're back. I await to find out if you took binoculars or not to Raiders. Oh, what a what a rookie mistake by me. Uh, it, it <laughs> only uh, I'll give uh, to Sean Reed of the Athletic the uh, the props here. The only one to remember them. Oh, the only wow. one to remember. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it was not good yesterday. We were, you know, and it was hotter than last week. So it just uh, <laughs> the, the the sun just beating down on you out there with that Ed, Ed, uh, uh, Patriots West out there where um, we found a little shade standing up against a fence and a little shade sitting on the top of the bleachers. But no, I forgot the binoculars. I will not make that mistake again because my feeling is during training camp and uh, mandatory uh mini camp next week it's going to be the same old same old and we're going to be like thousands of feet away from these guys aren't you glad they uh hired josh mcdaniels and dave ziggler well <laughs> so far no I don't, I don't i don't get it i mean in the past it's not like we were in in the huddle with them right i mean we were kind <sighs> to the side not that anyone cares about the media i get that but we're I, to answer your question we were kind of to the side up against the wall but with a tent so it's not like we were that near them we were a lot closer than we are now but it's not like we were tweeting hey you should see this play they're running uh let's let's get that on on twitter um so yeah this is a i think this is kind of the way they probably ran it in new england i've never been to new england so i've never covered their practices so i should put that out there to begin with and i should also put that out there i know no one cares um but just to uh uh come back with your answer no i forgot the binoculars and uh, we were very, very far away. I will not make that mistake again. I've got like 10. That's the thing. I've got from covering games all those years. I've got like 10 pairs at home and um, didn't bring any. I got all kinds of shapes and sizes and power and everything in my binoculars and uh, left them at home. All right. Here we go, Danny. The first bite. How did the Warriors blow game one? You know what? I got to be honest. I know you have probably have a lot to say about this. I don't even care how they blew it because I thought that was absolutely amazing watching. That was the best quarter I've seen from a basketball team in so long. Like how they blew it, whatever. I mean, 40 points and the way the Celtics shot in that fourth quarter, man, that was just fun to watch. They, what, started the fourth quarter on like an 11-2 to run and then decided, you know what, let's go on a 17-0 yes, run. 17-0 run just, on the road. Just put this game out of reach. The amazing part about the Boston Celtics in that fourth quarter is that the first part of the quarter, when they, they enter it down 10, the first part of that quarter was all about Jalen Brown. He was mm-hmm. incredible in like the first five minutes or so yep. of that fourth quarter and got Boston back into the game. And then... The 17-0 run is what's amazing. A, because you go on a 17-0 run in Golden State against the Warriors. That's incredible. But that 17-0 run 
Al Horford scored eight of those points. Marcus Smart scored six of those points. And Derek White scored the other three. Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum did not score a single point in what was the game-deciding run. That is unbelievable that they would basically get their role players to just go off for like five straight minutes to close out Golden State on the road in game one. Like, that's what's... like. We've seen a lot of really good runs in the NBA Finals, but it's usually like, oh, LeBron James scored the Cavs' last 28 points or something. Like, it's always like, oh, the best players made all of the shots or most of the shots. This was all the role players for Boston just going nuts for five minutes, and Golden State had no answer for it. Is it weird that I think all of what you just said wasn't the most surprising point, but the zero was the most surprising point? That yeah. they didn't score at home. That team with that kind of offense didn't score in a seventeen to nothing run. I understand all the role players, and that was an amazing storyline. But they didn't score at home in a seventeen zero run. Like that to me is unbelievable. So, to an effect, Steph Curry kind of choked this away. More or less, he disappeared. Steph Curry only took five shots total in the fourth quarter, and I believe he only took one during that seventeen zero run. You also had, I mean, the, the Draymond Green had a wide open three, and he had a wide open three for a reason. The Celtics are perfectly fine with Draymond Green taking threes. He missed it. And then there was another one. Like, the Celtics had had, I think it was like an eight or nine point lead with still like three minutes to go. They, pretty big lead, but still the Warriors yeah, couldn't come it. back from yeah. that. And Draymond Green got fouled, went to the free throw line, and missed both yeah, missed free both. throws. Badly. And, like, that basically ended the game right there if they make both of those they're down six or seven whatever it was and there's still time for them to make a, a late run but they missed both of those i think they gave up a basket to al horford on the other end and it that was it and so you had the best players on the warriors either disappear in terms of not get shots up curry and, and clay thompson or in draymond green's case take a bad three and right. then miss both free throws like that was a that was a collapse from the golden state warriors as bad as we've seen that team collapse too Oh, I haven't seen that. I can't even remember. I mean, you know, the two years where they were really, really bad, it didn't even matter because, they, you know, they didn't have Thompson and they were missing a lot of guys and they were just bad. But when they've been good, I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen them give up a 17-0 run like that, especially at home. And I'll go back to my original point. I can't believe they didn't score in that run. I know <laughs> it, it, it's amazing. It's, they didn't get two. They didn't get a foul called. They didn't, except, you know, like you said, from the Draymond, they didn't, uh, he misses both badly. Um, it, it was it was astonishing to watch at the house that you just watched it play out. Let me ask you this, because uh, there was a point made afterwards, um, and I don't know if this matters or not. And I'd look, Horford, Smart, White, are they going to do that again? Probably not. But when Tatum scores 12 on 3 of 17, and you know Jalen Brown's really, really good, you know, the point last night after the show was, well, after the game was, well, they're not going to do that again, so the Warriors should feel good about it. Yeah, but Tatum could go for 40. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Tatum did a good job distributing. He had a lot of assists there in the fourth quarter, too. But he he shot three of 17. Yeah. Like, that's horrible. Like, that's awful. And so, yes, I think Al Horford, Marcus Smart, and Derek White combined to make 15 threes. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably not going to happen again in this series. But... Jason Tatum's probably going to go for like 42 in a game yeah. in the series, and that'll make up for the role players not being unbelievably hot in the fourth quarter. So it's a 
it's a weird game to try to figure out, okay, what is going to carry over into games two and beyond? Because the other part of this is before that fourth quarter, the Warriors had an incredible third. Like the Warriors, oh yeah, they thirty won the something game points. In the third quarter, yeah. yeah, like that. That was an unbelievable third quarter. They outscored them by fourteen, and that I think is like what we've seen from Golden State to compare them to previous Golden State teams that have made the finals. The floor for this team is much lower than we've ever seen it for a Golden State team in the finals. And we saw that in the fourth quarter where they I, – I wonder if anybody's gone back and looked. There's no way they allowed a 17-0 run no chance. in any of the other no finals chance. they were in. No. And so the floor of this team is much lower. The ceiling is still about the same, right? Steph Curry, we saw it in the first quarter, can just go nuts and have a five-minute stretch where he just runs you out of the gym. But the floor is much lower, too. And last night, we got both. I mean, we got a first and a third quarter from Golden State and Steph Curry where they were incredible. But we also got a fourth quarter where they like they didn't look like they belonged on the floor. Right, like, it was right. just Boston just dominated them. And so that makes it, it – it, it means Golden State's got to show a level of consistency that they didn't have to worry about in years past that now all of a sudden, I mean, Boston goes on a 17-0 run. If that happens in any of these other games – the Warriors are going to lose. Who did uh, did you guys make your picks yesterday? Uh, Adam took Golden State. I took Boston. Okay. Sam Gordon and I out at the uh, out at the uh, football and the Raiders both said Boston in six, and I didn't feel good about that at halftime. I was like, that was kind of a stupid pick, and it, well, it still it still only might down be like two at half. Hmm. They were only down uh, like maybe two the at third half. quarter when, when yeah. they were down when they were down big. I'm like, that was a stupid pick. Um, no, and good. and the fact that they were only down two like. That's why the third quarter, you know, if you're a Boston fan, was so disappointing because Curry goes nuts. You don't play particularly well. Tatum can't hit a shot, and you're only down two at half. That's why you're like you're thinking, man, Boston went in there thinking pretty good about themselves. But then the third quarter happens, and you think the game's over. So one of the things that I found fascinating is the way Boston defended Steph Curry coming off of ball screens. When they ran a ball screen with that involved any of the Celtics big men, so Al Horford, Daniel Tice, or... Uh, Rob Williams the Boston Celtics were playing drop coverage so that big guy whenever his man would set the screen was not aggressively coming out to double or hedge Steph Curry it was they would drop inside the arc and so what that defense does and meanwhile Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum or Marcus Smart's trying to get over the top of the screen so what that defense does is it gives Steph Curry about a second where he can get up a three he can dribble into a three now if Tatum and Smart and Brown do a better job fighting over that screen. They can take that away, but it's pretty hard to do. But it gives Steph Curry that second where he can dribble into a three. And that's a big reason why he made so many in the first quarter. But what that takes away, because you have Horford or Tice or Williams dropping back a couple steps into the paint, Steph Curry can't drive to the rim. And the role man, whether it's Draymond Green or Kevon Looney, doesn't really have a great avenue or an open lane to cut to the basket. So that defense, while yes, it gave up a handful of threes to Steph Curry that he could just dribble into, it takes away almost anything the Warriors get going into the paint. And so that's why, even though it's Curry, even though it's the, the best shooter we have ever seen, I think that's the right defense because even Steph Curry, he was what, I think six of nine or something like that in the first quarter from three. Even Steph Curry's not going to hit every single three that he dribbles into off a screen. Right. That's a that's not a catch and shoot three. That's a difficult three to take. So even though they started to get torched in the first quarter, 
I'm perfectly fine with that defense because of what else it takes away. And basically you say, all right, if Steph Curry is going to hit 12 threes a day, we're going to lose. But if he has just an average day, we've got a shot because they're not getting layups. Yeah, that point became clear as the game went on. Early on, I wasn't so sure it was the best strategy <laughs> because he kept hitting threes. And like you said, he only needs a second. Like, yeah. that's the thing about him. He doesn't need, like, four or five seconds to, like, set his feet or whatever he has to do to, to, to get his shot off. So when they were playing that early on, I'm like, oh, geez, this guy's six of nine from three. Maybe you got to change things up. But like you said, as the game went on, he's going to miss shots, too. And when he started doing that and they started scoring at the other end, you know, the game changed a little. Um, yeah. I just, I, I the, that run, like I said, and, and you're right, um, to a point they all kind of choked it away. But I, you got to get. We got to give credit to that run. That oh. that thing was just unbelievable in the fourth quarter. How they shot the ball. I think one at one point had they made nine of eleven, um, and they weren't all layups. Uh, you know, they they a lot of them were threes. And um, Horford had kind of the baseline mid jumper that mid range jumper that was a huge shot. Um, just a ama- just an amazing game by Boston. Without being old enough to have seen like Larry Bird play, I have to imagine that's one of the five best quarters in Celtics history. It has to be 40 points. Yeah, I mean, they dominated Golden State on the road in a finals game, went on a 17-0 run. I'm sure there were some great Larry Bird quarters. I, I mean, Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett, they won a title. They had some uh, good quarters beating the Lakers too, but that had to had to be a top five yeah. quarter in Celtics history, just given the circumstance and and also given who made the shots. Like, well, yeah, it, <laughs> here's Al Horford. He's thirty five. Right. What a game by Al oh, Horford. It's amazing. I mean, that was incredible. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into the Raiders and uh, find out if Ed can tell who's big and fast and strong without his binoculars. What I like uh, about the group that we have is that everyone wants to learn, and uh, there there isn't any player saying, oh, I got this, or oh, I did this before. Everyone's like, hey, you know, what, what's that? Or, hey, can you do that again? And uh, if you get a room full of guys that are like that, the sky's the limit. And like I said, I'm not here to make guarantees, but that, that's, very, that's a very good thing to have on a team. Uh, and that just shows uh, that everyone loves football. You want to get better. You want to work on your craft. So uh, we have a room or a team full of guys that want to learn, and we have coaches that want to coach. So um, it's fun. It's fun every day. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios, this is the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff. All right, Ed, without your binoculars standing approximately seven football fields away, are you able to tell who's big or who is fast? I can't do it yet. I can't do it yet. Um, They had one drill that was near us. And we were like, you know, high-fiving that we could see players. Uh, it appears Hunter Renfro can catch the ball and cover it to the end zone. Okay. Uh, that's kind of like my ta- – I can only give you one takeaway a day when we're that far out. So I, I believe number 13 can catch the ball, he can cover the ball up, and he can sprint to the end zone. And that was what how, we took away. How confident are you that that actually was Hunter Renfro and not just somebody else in his jersey? 50-50. Okay, perfect, perfect. I uh, okay. I, we, I gotta, I gotta be mad at McDaniel's now because I need the exclusive Ed Graney. I know. I on do, how he's, big people are. Maybe next time when he's in the press conference, I can say, "Listen, man, uh, my radio uh, co-host needs this. Can you uh, let me stand over there so I can see who's big and fast?" <laughs> uh, did Derek Hard not talk again? He did not. He did not. Uh, is that uh, strange? Are we looking well, reading too much into anything here? I believe without knowing much, but I believe he was scheduled to talk after the first 
voluntary OTA, and that was the day after Colin Kaepernick worked out, and the probably the assumption was, yeah, let's not talk about that and have 40 questions about Colin Kaepernick. Yesterday, I thought it was removed enough to where we might get him, but we didn't. We got Chandler Jones, Hunter Renfro, Nate Hobbs. Uh, those were the ones we got yesterday. So maybe next week at mandatory OTA, excuse me, mandatory minicamp, um, he uh, he shows up and uh, uh, in the in the interview room, but I'm not sure. I, I I was pretty sure we were getting McDaniel's and Derek Carr after the first one, and then Colin Kaepernick happened, and you kind of understand that you know you're going to put him out there, and it's going to be like 40 questions about Colin Kaepernick, and they probably didn't want to go through that. Man, gets a big new contract and can't talk to yeah. the media. What's yeah. this? What's we'll this? See it. We'll have to see it mandatory next week. There's three <laughs> days of mandatory. If he doesn't talk during mandatory three days, then you might say something. So it's uh, three days next week, right? Three days of mandatory next week. One more OTA the week after that, and then uh, rookies. If I'm if I'm not uh, mistaken, rookies report July 18th. Veterans the next day, and the first availability on the training camp is July 20. Okay, so you're right. So if if Derek Carr doesn't talk in any of the three days next week, it might be time to be like, all right, what's going on here? Yeah, it's mandatory five, because they're all there. The they should be all there. We'll the quarterback see. Quarterback hasn't talked. We'll yeah. see if they're It'll all be, there next week. Great. I think they will be. Here's a here's a fun stat for you. Uh, Football Outsiders puts together like expected interceptions every year, and what that means is they go in and they basically subtract any interceptions that were like hail marys. Uh, and they subtract interceptions that were like tipped or dropped by the wide receiver. So if you remember week one, when the Raiders played the Ravens, I can't remember who the receiver was, but Derek Carr in the end zone threw a ball that went right off a receiver's hands and got picked off. So like that doesn't count against Derek Carr. We're trying to basically figure out who was throwing the most interceptable passes. They also go in though and add plays where a defender dropped an interception so you throw it it hits a defender in two hands and they're just a safety and they can't catch it Derek Carr ended up tied for ninth most interceptions in the league after this with Patrick Mahomes uh there were five dropped interceptions for Derek Carr which is not a a massive number that's pretty average but what I found interesting Ben Roethlisberger last year defensive players dropped 16 potential interceptions and it's the most that football outsiders have tracked since 2007. Who are those guys? Get them on the jugs machine. <laughs> 16 dropped interceptions? What, what? And, and remember, <laughs> they made the playoffs yeah. by a half game. Well, he always, uh, Tomlin always makes the playoffs, but I can't believe there are that many dropped interceptions. 16 of them? 16. That means like. And that's if, not, is, are those including tips? That that is that is the ones that defensive players drop. They just so, it's just thrown to them. Yeah, those are ones that hit defenders in the hands and they did not catch it. Wow. And and listen, the football outside I can't remember what the number was, but they had a percentage where it's like they only expect defensive players to catch like fifty or sixty percent of the actual interceptions. So it's not like you have sixteen dropped interceptions that should have been sixteen, but it should have been like eight, nine, or ten. Right, right. Which is incredible. And like so, they made the playoffs last year. By a half game, we had the entire Sunday night football scenario where a tie would send both the Raiders and the Chargers to the postseason, but a loss by one of them would put the Steelers in. If just like one or two of those 16 are caught, the Steelers probably don't make probably playoffs. Out. Yeah. The Chargers are probably in. Like that game probably doesn't even matter against the Raiders. They both probably would have been in. Another in reason scenario. Roethlisberger retired. <laughs> He's he, like, he, right. he should have thrown 16 more interceptions. This is as lucky as it gets for me. I will see you guys later. Also, and and I, 
we probably remember this from the season, but Patrick Mahomes led the league with, he had five balls last year that were considered drops by his wide receivers. So tipped balls out of their hands into someone else's. Exactly. Yeah. Like ones where it's definitely not the quarterback's fault, where the quarterback hit the receiver somewhere in the vicinity of where he needed to be. And the receiver managed to turn that into an interception. Um, I think that might be why the Chiefs got rid of all their wide receivers and brought in a whole new group. Like, all right, we can't have you guys just turning Mahomes passes into picks. Like, I'm pretty sure just trying to remember back, I think Tyree Kill was responsible for like two of those. That I didn't that I don't remember, but like, you know, I guess it doesn't surprise me. This wasn't like me, Cole Hardman, and right. Demarcus Robinson were just out here doing it five times. Like I, I'm pretty sure Tyree Kill and maybe Travis Kelsey were responsible for a good chunk of those. I mean, those are the main guys he always throws to, anyways. So like maybe that's why. Hey, get this guy out of here. We can't pay him. He he turns all these. He got they got rid of all those guys. Yeah, I mean they're they're. I mean Kelsey's back, but their wide receiver room is it's Juju Smith-Schuster, it's the guy they drafted Sky Moore, and it's Marquez Valdez Scantling. Like those are probably going to be their top three pass catchers outside of Kelsey, obviously. And none of those guys were on the team last year. So that'll be, I'm, I kind of hope we get into like week three and uh, the chiefs wide receivers have turned like four drops into opponent interceptions. That'll be fun. If that happens again. So we talking kind of average for Derek Carr. Yeah. He comes in nothing really special or out of the ordinary. Right. I mean, ninth most interceptions after this doesn't sound great, but he also threw like the 10th most passes in the league. Right. So it, he was right in right in line, right in average. Nothing too crazy from Derek Carr. The the bigger problem with Carr, he's never really been a high interception guy. He's had a couple of years where the numbers have gotten up a little bit. But the bigger question, like we've talked about, is the fumbles. He's been oh, one of the worst. Oh, it's a much bigger problem. For yeah. Him. It, it fumbling and yes. especially when you look fumbling at how when the, you're down at the goal line also right and when you look at how the roster's constructed the offensive line might not be the best right you got to be able to hold on to the ball when you're getting hit and that's been the biggest issue for Derek Carr and it's why we have taken on Jared's love of hand size on this show because Carr has below average hand size and he fumbles a lot yeah. so it's a it's a fun topic that's why you shouldn't have drafted Kenny Pickett so high because that guy's hands are tiny well All right. Kenny Pickett can have 16 dropped in IT INTs this year that's a good point. Probably not. I, I 16's assume, a lot, man. I assume he's not going to... He might not even throw 16 <laughs> He might not even throw 16 passes. Yeah, that's, that, that too. <laughs> might not happen. All right, coming up next, Ben Brown joins the show. You're sitting in the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler. Joining us now from Pro Football Focus is Ben Brown. You can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Ben Brown. Uh, ben, last week we were talking about the chances of all four AFC West teams making the postseason. Uh, and you did go and run the simulations to see how many times that would happen. The PFF simulations 10,000 times. Uh, 1% basically that all four make it. But what I thought was interesting is there's actually... A 23.6% chance that three AFC West teams make the playoffs. That seemed higher than I thought. Do we have Ben? Maybe we don't have Ben Brown. Uh oh. Uh oh. We did have him. I'll try him again. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. I set up that great question and everything. Man. 23% so, uh, compared to zero, compared to 1% for all four. Yeah. That seems like a, four, that seems like a big jump. 
Yeah, all four at 1%, and okay, they were, they were three of the four at 23.6%, which uh, I get why it's 1% for all four, because somebody's probably got to suck. I assume somebody's oh, got to suck, but 24% is is pretty good, pretty high there. So there's your chances, which is which is why we've talked so much about somebody's going to be bad in this division. Somebody's going to underperform expectations. All right, Ben Brown we with have. us from Pro Football Focus now. All right, Ben, we were just talking about last week, how many AFC West teams can make the postseason? You actually did go run the simulations at PFF. 1% chance that all four teams could make it out of the AFC West, but a 23.6% that three of them could make it. Was that 23.6% higher than you expected? Yeah, it actually was. I was uh, definitely surprised by that number. I was thinking it was probably going to be closer uh, you know, to the 10 to 15% range, but I do think uh, given the state of kind of the AFC East and AFC South, it does make sense, uh, you know, with how strong the AFC West could potentially be that uh, even though they might beat up on each other, there probably are enough wins spread out outside of the division for three teams to get in. So uh, definitely was a little bit surprising, but I think looking back on it now, uh, it definitely fits and could make a lot of sense here as we head toward the 2022 season. All right, I get fascinated with these simulations, especially 10,000 of them. Explain to people out there who might not know, what's the data put into this? What goes into this to figure out it's 23% comparative to 1%? Yeah, definitely. So basically we we run through the, you know, entire regular season uh, mapping out uh, all the, all the, all the model techniques that we use uh, to power our like PFF green line simulation. So uh, we do take into account, you know, team strength metrics. We take into account, uh, individual facet grades as far as like passing, you know, rushing, uh, and that kind of groups in, you know, all the running backs along with the quarterbacks that might be rushing as well. Uh, we fold all that in. We fold in, uh, you know, a lot of like the rest situations, the travel situations, uh, and, and all that. And then we kind of, you know, simulate out every single week uh, with the team adjusting based on how they performed in that particular situation. And then we get, you know, tons of results, and that gives us, you know, not only like the median projection for how well that team is going to perform, but also, uh, you know, that high end and low end expectation as well. And I do think that, you know, given the fact that we run it 10,000 times, we get, uh, you know, not only a pretty wide distribution, but also uh, a lot of scenarios where the team is probably going to end up falling into. So I do think uh, if getting uh, not necessarily just a medium outlook uh, on a particular team, but more so like, you know, their top end and low end range, uh, a simulation is by far the best way to actually go about that. I do think that, you know, PFFs in particular uh, does, has done a pretty good job uh, in prior years performing, uh, you know, and showing how well teams are actually going to perform against uh, the betting markets. I do think that in 2022, that's only going to, you know, be highlighted as well, I would say. All right. Well, you get a golf clap because I think you had these numbers up six seconds after the show. So all the stuff you just said is a lot. So I got to give you a lot of credit. I saw it like right after right. the show that you've done this. Uh, I had to get but, it in. I know it was, it was a really interesting question. So I thought it was, uh, you know, I do think it speaks to the strength of the AFC West. I do think that it should provide some hope for Raiders fans that even in a really tough division, uh, there is a viable path to the playoffs, I would say. Uh, what is more likely by the simulations? All four teams make it from the AFC West or like the Texans make the playoffs? I would say, so I think we have, I can give you the numbers on the Texans right now. Um it's definitely the Texans making the playoffs. We actually have them right around a uh, 12% chance uh, at making the playoffs. So we are actually uh, a little bit above market. I think the market last time I checked it was right around like 75 to 8% chance for uh, the Texans to make the playoffs. So 
Um, you know, we, we might like what they're building a little bit down in Houston right now, I would say. So definitely the Texans, both, uh, you know, 12 times better to make the playoffs than all four AFC West teams wow. right now. Good value. Go bet on the Texans to make the postseason. Do it. Yep. Yeah, there's, and it's interesting, you know, when you look at these simulation results, obviously the market adjusts for, you know, public sentiment and those sorts of things. So a lot of the teams that we show value on to make the playoffs are teams that uh, not necessarily too many people are going to want to back or even inclined to back or probably are, you know, pretty maligned, I would say, from a betting market perspective. Because we do like, you know, a team like the Cincinnati Bengals now to make the playoffs. Uh, we show pretty decent value on them as well. I think they're probably uh, maybe the most popular fade heading into 2022. So uh, I think it, it helps you at least kind of check some of those emotions and those sorts of things when you are, you know, evaluating these teams in the future context. That's interesting. How much, I mean, how much juice do you put on the on on the books and, and what people are betting? I didn't think you that would be part of it. but you, So you look at what the public's betting and that's uh, kind of intertwined? Well, I think I, and this is kind of how it works, right? So I do think the, the the public bets on these numbers, and the numbers move based on how much action these books are, uh, you know, taking into account, right? So we see teams like the Philadelphia Eagles, who are probably you know the biggest risers this off season, uh, and we do take some of that you know roster uh, movement and those sorts of things into consideration. Uh, but I do think when we see value in a lot of spots, it's on teams that uh, are probably overvalued in the betting market, like the Philadelphia Eagles right now, according to our simulation. I do think that, you know, too strong of a reaction uh, to the public and buying into them in 2022. And they do still have, you know, a lot of, a lot of warts, a lot of potential issues, especially at the quarterback position, if they don't reach that, you know, high end outcome. So looking at those teams, and then I do think on the flip side of that, there are teams that, you know, have gotten, you know, a lot of grief in the betting market, like the Cincinnati Bengals, uh, like the Arizona Cardinals in a lot of ways. And I do think that, you know, we take some of those considerations into account, but I do think they become overstated in the betting market. Uh, and that's kind of where our simulation then shows value. Are you fading the Bengals going into this year? I, I, was, I was not actively backing them in any sort of way, Um before kind of looking at this, I do think that, you know, making a bet on them to potentially uh, win that particular division does make a lot of sense right now. Because I, I personally believe that Cleveland Browns are looking like maybe one of the more overrated teams in the NFL right now. Again, a lot of, a lot of things still need to be sussed out with, you know, when Deshaun Watson gets back, all these other things. But I do think that uh, the public is definitely backing them too much. And I do think that that is, you know, an opportunity or some of these other teams that are just a little bit undervalued in the AFC North. And I do think the Cincinnati Bengals are probably uh, the best example of that team right now. Do you pay attention much to OTAs in terms of changing your numbers or your mind on teams? Uh, we don't really move things a bunch. I do find it interesting. Uh, and one of the things that we're trying to capture and do really, you know, a lot better of this, this year in particular is, uh, you know, depth chart maintenance, giving people really accurate uh, outlook for who's actually going to be playing for those certain teams in certain positions and then the injury aspect, right? And I do think that you can get a pretty decent gauge on who's actually going to be ready for training camp uh, just based on their just based on their participation in OTAs, uh, how well they're performing, how well they're coming back from injuries. So those things are uh, spots that I monitor. But um, I do think, you know, looking at the macro level with futures markets and those sorts of things, there isn't a whole lot that's ever going to move the needle in OTAs, I would say. You ever been slapped over fantasy football? Oh, I mean, I've probably been. Uh, you know, people have wanted to slap me. I've kind of wanted to slap myself at certain points. I do. I know. I think uh, I'm definitely drifting a lot more towards 
you know, not really, not necessarily not enjoying fantasy football, but I do think there's just a lot of other ways to consume football now that uh, fantasy has definitely taken a back seat uh, in my perspective and how I actually enjoy the football game. So you're not joining a league with Tommy Pham is what you're telling us. I'm not joining the league with Tommy Pham. I think that's, that's a little too serious. I'm wondering what the stakes that they are actually playing for in that particular league to get that upset about something, you know, eight months later or something like that. I, I, I read some of the details on that story, but there is still, I think, you know, a lot missing as far as what really went into that uh, whole situation happening. But it is fascinating to see, you know, even these, you know, professional NFL athletes uh, get pretty worked up about these fantasy leagues, which is, you know, uh, an exciting time, I would say, for me personally. Is there a bigger favorite this year in the NFL than Fam would be in a fight against the kid who wears his hat sideways? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. That that seems like the lock of the century, I would say, for sure. So. <laughs> well, he has been Brown from Pro Football Focus. Ben, as always, we appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, guys. Oh, and oh, we, we'll get to it in the front page, but we have a few more a few more details oh. on the Fantasy Football League. Has anyone uh, asked these other guys like Machado and Hosmer? I haven't seen anything. I don't know what Padres Media is doing, but they need to get on it. Oh. You know the people in San Diego. I know. Diego. I've got, I've got to text my guy and say, hey, did, yeah. forget about losing games and your bullpen continuing to blow games. I love that. But why don't you go to Machado and Hosmer and ask about this league? This is the most important story in yes. sports. Let's get it together. We need to know. We we need the sort of like not the commissioner, not the two players involved. We need like the unbiased members of the league to tell us what actually happened here. Because all we're getting is Peterson side and Fam side. We need what's what's the truth. Has what's the, the league middle? or commissioner said anything? Mike Trout, and we'll get to this. He kind of he kind of declined to comment. Um, Smart. So Mike <laughs> Mike Trout hasn't hasn't really given us too much more insight as to what was actually happening here. All right, coming up next, uh, we'll jump into some UNLV basketball and what this team looks like with Donovan Williams going pro. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff. Earlier this week, Donovan Williams decided to stay in the NBA draft, and that means he is not coming back to UNLV. Uh, Ed missed yesterday's show. We we did talk about this, but I did want to get your thoughts on it. What do you think NBA teams told Donovan Williams that he decided, that made him decide to stay in the NBA draft? I think at best, maybe someone floated a second round pick. At best, um, not going to change my mind on this. I think he always wanted to go, which is his decision. He's an adult. He can do what he wants. Um, I think he wanted to hear, uh, we had Mike Ramallah on earlier during the process. I think he wanted to hear certain things. And it's interesting because he had tryouts all the way up to the end, right? I think he tried out for the Warriors last. Um, He just wanted to go. I I, I don't have, there's no way anyone could have given him any evaluation except maybe second round. Obviously he's not a first round pick. Um, so if one team told him that, heck, maybe the Warriors told him that. We don't know what the Warriors told him, um, that, you know, they consider him in the second round or they thought he was a second-round pick, that that's what, uh, that's what he needed to hear. Um, wish him the best. Uh, I don't know if he can be a second-round pick. I don't know if he, you know, I, I think he could possibly play in the G League next year. Um, but, you know, I just uh, I wish him the best. I, so when you see there's an NBA draft combine that invites 75 players yeah, and, and he doesn't he's not get invited. one of them and there's 60 draft picks in the NBA draft, it, it makes it hard to envision Donovan Williams getting drafted. And so I have to imagine 
that an NBA team might have simply told him, yeah, we'll, we'll, you'll get a shot in the summer league and, and you'll have a shot to make a roster as an undrafted free agent. And that might have been enough for Donovan Williams. The other part about Donovan Williams, and this is true for anybody that goes pro that's not a guaranteed first rounder, how willing is an individual player to go play in a different country? Yeah. Because yep. if you're if if you're committed to just the United States, then it's college basketball, NBA, or G League. Those are really the only legitimate options. But if you're willing, if you're perfectly fine with playing in Europe or something like that, there are plenty of options. And you can make a significant amount of money playing basketball in another country. But not everybody's willing to do just that. Not everybody's willing to move to a different country across the world to play basketball. So that's always a question, I think, that we don't really get answered when somebody like Donovan Williams stays uh, in the draft is how willing are they to do that? Now, from the UNLV standpoint, who's going to be the leading scorer? Who's for this scoring team on this year? team? <laughs> I mean, you know the roster. Uh, Harkless, who, 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 who do you think steps up as the scorer? I'm guessing Elijah Harkless is going to be the first choice to be the number one option on this team. But like you, if you go through the roster and try to find who has any track record of being an offensive player at the college level, and the best you can really do is Elijah Harkless scored 10 points per game for Oklahoma last year. And the problem with that is you could be like, oh, yeah, he was at Oklahoma and he's going to be even better taking a step down. The problem with that is he wasn't very efficient at Oklahoma last year. His offensive rating was about a 92. The average is about 100. And we've seen him at a lower level, Cal State Northridge, for two seasons where he wasn't very efficient and a great scorer there either. So there's nothing in Elijah Harkless's past that suggests, yeah, you can make this guy the number one option. He'll score you 17 points, 18 points a game and do it efficiently. There's nothing to suggest that. Maybe Kevin Kruger and his coaching staff can sort of coach him up. Maybe there's some adjustments to his game or some way they build the offense that Harkless has a breakout year, but I wouldn't really count on him being super efficient. And then after Harkless, the only other guy is Jackie Johnson, who as a freshman scored nine points per game in 19 minutes. He was, wasn't even playing half the game for Duquesne, but he scored a lot when he was in. But his efficiency was fine, but not special. And it's hard to imagine you go from bench score at Duquesne to number one option at UNLV and that be good enough for an NCAA tournament level team. So it's, I don't know what they're going to do. Because the other, the other thing, the other key here, Last year, UNLV went and got, you know, your Donovan Williams, your Royce Ham, your Victor E. Walker, your Jordan McCabe. All those guys were power conference players that were not playing very much. They didn't have very many minutes to their name. Almost all the transfers they've brought in this year have played a lot of minutes at their previous school. So they're not, it's hard to I say, oh, well, they're going to have a breakout year like Donovan Williams. Donovan Williams had a breakout year because he went from getting like one minute a game to being like the second most important player on the team. None of these guys that they brought in are guys that haven't been playing. Luis Rodriguez, Elijah Parquet, they've all been playing significant minutes for their previous teams. They're just not very good on offense. So you can't even really project, oh, this guy, they're going to give him more minutes and he's going to be a great offensive player. They've all been getting minutes. So I don't know where the points come well, from. You're, you're really counting on either Harkless or Jackie Johnson to be awesome or 
just a collection of guys kind of trading off who's number one each night. And what did we say last year? You made the point that they needed someone better than Bryce Hamilton. Uh, and Bryce Hamilton's gone. Donovan Williams is gone. I think they have a few scholarships left. I don't look. I don't know. Everyone's still in the portal, but it's late. It's June. It's June third. Is there someone better than him? Is there a scorer out there? I mean, you'd figure those guys have already been, uh, you know, uh, taken up at other places. So I don't know if you can go in the portal and say, well, we're going to get someone better than Donovan Williams right now. That to me would be a surprise, only because how late it is. Yeah, there are. So Evan Maya has. Um transfer portal rankings for players and uh looking through here real quick it looks like there's about eight guys in his top 50 that are still available but i don't believe unlv's been linked to any of them and you know maybe that could change but like if they landed one of those like a top 50 incoming transfer then you might sit back and say okay they they might have something here but if they land a guy who's like oh he's the 187th best transfer right you're probably not getting too excited about that guy might be a good player helpful player but it's a team that we went into the offseason saying okay if they're going to make a push to the ncaa tournament they're losing bryce hamilton they probably need to find somebody as good as or better than bryce hamilton yeah. to do so they haven't done that at least on the offensive end they, they found a lot of good defensive players but they haven't done that on the offensive end and now they've lost donovan williams and I'm not even sure they found an offensive player so far that's as good as Donovan. Williams. No, that's the point. And if they haven't found someone as good as offensively as Donovan Williams, who was the second option last year to Bryce, I mean, you're really looking at a team that might struggle to score, and they better be as good defensively as everyone thinks they're yeah. going to be. I, I think they've improved a lot defensively, but I don't know if it's enough to offset the offensive losses. And that's when when you're looking at year two and, hey, you need to sort of be contending for the NCAA tournament. That's where it becomes tough. It'll be a hell of a coaching job by Kevin Kruger this year if they do.